0: Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Search for Truth. We have our tenth talk in our series today, and it's uh, the series called Nothing But Christ Crucified. We continue our studies, or rather Brian does, our Bible teacher, uh, from the Apostle Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, or 1 Corinthians to me and you. This time, Brian tackles the subject of types by comparing Scripture from this book and parts of the old testament so let's discover more with this study of
1: types with brian to tell us more thanks john as you say our study today is going to involve us in saying something about typology typology as serious bible students will already know means studying the types and that in turn begs the question as to what is a type well in the bible a type can be a person for example moses as we do for him in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Or it could be a place, such as the most holy place of the tabernacle, about which we can find a reference in Hebrews chapter 9. Or it could be the office of the high priest. We pick up that from Psalm 110. Or it might be Israel's holy festivals, like the Day of Atonement, again referred to in Hebrews 9. Or it might be an object like the bronze snake that is referenced in John chapter 3. Trying to put it simply, a type is a way of presenting biblical history such that some previous events can be regarded as anticipations of later events. Many Old Testament events were perhaps not primarily recorded for themselves, but for what they foreshadowed or represented. They were truly historical things, but the record of them is made to serve a further purpose. The study of these things is a necessity if the full meaning of the New Testament is to be grasped and appreciated. We're going to put that to the test in our current study as we come to the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10. Here, first of all, is what Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Perhaps we should press the pause button there and ask, is there a particular significance in the mention of the cloud? I would like to suggest there is. In addition to that cloud being the indication of God's guiding presence with his people, something else is very likely implied here since the term baptism is retrospectively applied to this historic Red Sea crossing. The picture which emerges here is of the Jewish people escaping from their old way of life in Egypt and heading on to a new life full of promise, while passing between walls of water on either side, and this being the point with the cloud of water droplets above them. In effect, they were immersed or buried in water. No wonder this experience is described as their baptism, for its mode is an exact parallel to the description of believers' baptism that we find Paul sharing in Romans chapter 6. But let's continue. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Another moment's reflection if I may, very shortly the Apostle Paul will come to speaking with the Corinthians about New Testament spiritual eating and drinking with God, no less than at the breaking of the bread which the Lord Jesus commanded we should do every week as a priority reason for gathering as churches of God. Now, if the Red Sea crossing and the spiritual drinking from the rock are understood to be anticipating the ordinances, being referred to here in Corinthians, namely baptism and the breaking of the bread, then what's the intended lesson? Let's leave that question hanging and come back to it after reading the next few verses. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Twice in that short section that we've just read, Paul has explained that these historic events befell Israel as examples for us. That word example is precisely the word we get our word type from. Remember, we earlier described a type as a way of presenting biblical history such that some of its previous activities can be regarded as anticipations of later activities, Many events in the Old Testament were perhaps not recorded primarily for themselves, but for what they foreshadowed. They were certainly historical, but the record of them is made to serve a further purpose. The Old Testament writers were probably not even conscious that what they wrote had any future significance. Types would most probably not have been recognised by the original audience until they were pointed out by Christ and by the New Testament writers. Types have a single point of comparison which serves to illustrate something about its sequel, and we must always be careful not to stretch the type too far. Perhaps it's not going too far to say that the outstanding case of typology in the whole biblical story is the one we're dealing with in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's the story of the Exodus of the Israelite people from Egypt and the accompanying events which befell them as they attempted to make their way to the promised land. As a classic example of divine deliverance, this exodus event gave a form of language which was applied centuries later to the release of the exiles from Babylon. You'll find that in Hosea chapter 9. And later still, to the redemption accomplished by Christ, as we have it spoken of in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. And here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where the Israelites passing through the Red Sea and their feeding on the wilderness bread from heaven and the water from the rock are anticipations of Christian baptism and the Lord's Supper. It does all seem to be designed to make it very plain to us that such sacred experiences will not protect Christians against divine judgment if they indulge in wrongdoing, no more than the Israelites were immune when they were disobedient during the wilderness wanderings. This warning is now made explicit in what follows from chapter 10. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are are we stronger than he? Back in chapter 8, we've encountered the Lord's counsel to Corinthian believers against eating food which had undergone pagan rituals, some of which are repeated at the conclusion of chapter 10. But what we've now just read advances a further reason against eating food sacrificed to idols. Eating that food in a deliberate and meaningful way brings the person who is eating into communion with dark powers. This is an illegitimate and wholly counterfeit experience to the one which God desires disciples of Christ to engage in. At the breaking of the bread in a church of God, disciples have their highest possible opportunity to have communion with their God. In a culture which prized hospitality, words like cup and table were powerful metaphors for fellowship. God's ancient people communed with God at his altar. Now, obedient Christians experience that in bread and wine as everyone who is part of the gathered church breaks off and eats a portion of the bread which is symbolic of the Lord's body, not only do they very preciously recall his once-for-all sacrifice for them on the cross, but they very tangibly and visibly express their unity, for they all share together in that one emblem.
2: Blood
0: Thanks for your talk, Brian. Once again, i remind you of the opportunity to send for the booklet to accompany this series. It's very useful in that it gives the Bible references and sources so that you can pursue further study if you so wish. But the book is a good read by itself and well worth having, so if you'd like a copy, please write in, making sure to let us have your postal address. Ask for the title, Nothing But Christ Crucified. You can order by email or by post, and here are our contact details. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wotton Bassett, Swindon, sn 8 dy Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. Now, you may be interested to know that you can listen again to many of these broadcasts off-air by audio podcast or MP3 versions. If you go to www.searchfortruth.podbean.com, you can browse the list of previous talks, which you'll see has been sorted into categories to assist you to find what you're looking for. Now, I hope you found uh, Brian's subject interesting, his talk today. And uh, we thank you for being with us. It's great to have had your company. Now, there's a further talk in this series next week, so please do join us if you can. Until then, very best wishes from Bible teacher Brian, our studio technician David, our singers and me, John. So cheerio, and may God richly bless you.